Like me, I was a member of my church, but I hadn't really come to Christ. From the very beginning, I was reared in a Christian atmosphere. My father and mother both were Christians. By the time I was a teenager, they came an evangelist to our town, Mordecai Ham. I remember I got under such conviction, and one night they gave the invitation to receive Christ, and I reluctantly went. But I really meant business with the Lord. I came just as I was, with all my sins, all my failures, and the Lord received me and changed me. That has transformed me till this day. I've never been the same. Jesus is the only way of life, eternal life, that he gives to every one of us that have put our faith in him. There are a couple of things I'm sure about this morning, well, many things, um, and hopefully most of them are true, but two in particular that I want to um, ask you to think about uh, as you turn to Hebrews 11. One is, this past week, you have probably heard an awful lot about Billy Graham, especially because of his passing on Wednesday. But number two, I'm certain you've not heard enough. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him this morning as you join with me in Hebrews chapter 11 and beginning in verse number 17. Billy just referenced his uh, conversion when he came to Christ as, uh, as a uh, 16, 17-year-old kid in Charlotte, North Carolina. What you don't know is that kids in his high school uh, were uh, thinking about staging a protest in front of the platform in the tent where the crusade was going on. The preacher, Mordecai Ham, was very severe and strong and was preaching on sins that were rather common in the high school. He didn't name names, but he threw down and it stung some people because what he said was true. He actually had some public documents documenting things such as arrests and other things. And he'd been trained as an attorney, so he knew how to access that information. Well, they thought that they were going to stage a protest. And Billy was quite annoyed with Mordecai Ham. His parents would go. And you have to understand, crusades back then would have a beginning date, but not an end date. They would just go and harvest until the harvest ended, until people stopped responding. And then they would move on someplace else. So it was open-ended, and Mordecai Ham was in the community for several uh, months. Well, one evening, Billy went, and he was um, uh, there, and uh, it looked like and felt like Mordecai Ham was looking at him the whole service. Have you ever been in a church service like that? The pastor may not even known your name, but he was looking at you the whole service. Well, that's what happened to Billy. And he went several nights, and then he went back another night and thought, I just can't stand this man looking at me, so I'm going to sit up in the choir. So he couldn't sing, but he said he could fake moving his mouth and hold a book. And so that's what he did. He got up in the choir and did that. Now, none of our choir members do that. But, um, and you've seen, they've left the choir loft and come out here, okay? But uh, uh, in any case, that's what Billy did uh, that, uh, that evening. And uh, when, uh, so he's trying to avoid the evangelist entirely and completely. Well, the invitation's given, and the first song they sing is Just As I Am. And he responds, and they go into a second song. Uh, softly and tenderly. And Billy responds on the last verse of that particular song, and there he opened his heart and life to Christ and gave himself to Jesus, and he met Christ. Now, isn't it interesting? 
He tried to avoid the evangelist, but he met Jesus and became one. And that's something. Um, the, the point I want to make from that is, is that genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ changes your life. And if you give yourself to Christ today, He's going to change your life and your eternity. I doubt seriously He'll make you an evangelist, but if He does, you'll rejoice in that. But uh, that's what God did with him. And that illustrates marvelously the power of saving faith in Jesus Christ. And at the end of this message, we'll sing a song, and we're going to give you the opportunity to meet Jesus Christ like Billy Graham and so many others here in this place and around the world have. If you will uh, reject and divorce yourself from a life where Jesus Christ is not Lord and Savior of your life and embrace Him and trust His cross and resurrection, He'll save you. And we want to help you with that today at the end of this message when we sing a song. Staff will be here and we'll invite you to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Well, the point that we're making here is, is that it does change you when you come to Jesus Christ, when we place genuine faith in Him. And what he wants us to do is that he wants us to entrust him with the most valuable things in our lives. And Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph here in this text actually exchange the most precious things they have for the promises of God. Beginning in verse number 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who received the promises offered up his only begotten son of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, in worship leaning on the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure, or literally exodus, of the children of Israel, and gave instruction concerning his bones. What in the world does all of this mean? Well, if you're familiar with Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 50, you'll understand this, and I'll reference some of that this morning if you do not. But we can see that God comes through with promises when we entrust to Him that which is most precious to us. Well, what do I need to entrust to him. Well, first, Abraham teaches us that by faith you give God your blessings. What kind of blessings has God given you? What from his hand has entered into your life? Well, for some of you, of course, it's your marriage and your children and your home and your family, your work, your, your intelligence, your skills, um, the things that you enjoy doing. These are things that God has given you or hardwired in you from your own birth. And Abraham would understand something about that if you were to give those to God this morning. In verse 17 through verse number 19, we find a promise, a problem, and a solution. Look at verse number 17 for the promise. Uh, verse 17 and 18. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac whom he received, the promises, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Abraham has no children, and God comes to him and says, I'm going to bless the entire world with salvation through your family. That promise that I made in the garden of there being a seed of the woman, an offspring of Eve, to come into this world to crush Satan's head, to have victory over uh, the devil and death and sin, that's going to come through you. Well, Abraham's 75 years old, and he doesn't have any children. He's about two-thirds of the way through his life. 
And then he gets to be 100 and God gives him Isaac. And Isaac is born. And now uh, what we have is that we've got this promise. Abraham is given a promise. And that is talked about in Genesis 12, chapter 15, and chapter 17 as well. But here's the problem. Verse number 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. God comes to him knowing full well that the future of this promise depends on Isaac living. And in a day of early death and high mortality, this is what, uh, this is what happened. Uh, God called Abraham to take him to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him and to give him to God as a thanksgiving offering. Not a sin offering. So you see the dilemma here. The promise in the family is to come before through Isaac, and Isaac isn't married, and Isaac hasn't had any children. And God says, I want you to sacrifice him to me. Well, how in the world do you get descendants who'll bring the Messiah into the world through a dead son? How in the world do you do that? Well, the solution that Abraham imagined is found here in verse number 19. He just concluded God was able to raise him up even from the dead. So he thought he was going to go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice Isaac, and God on the spot was going to raise him from the dead. In fact, it's interesting in Genesis 22, 5, that whenever he, right before he and Isaac ascend to Mount Moriah, they say to their servants, you stay here, and the boy and I will go up and worship, and we will come back to you. He believed in an instantaneous resurrection. That's the only thing he could figure out. Well, if you've read the story, you understand that what God actually did is that as Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, uh, he intervened and said, Abraham, don't do this. Instead, I have provided a ram off in the thicket, and there he took a ram and he sacrificed it to God in Isaac's place, which is precisely what Jesus did for us. And that's why we're so energetic and so happy and so excited to call you to come to Jesus Christ. You don't have to bear your own sins before God. Just like Isaac didn't have to be sacrificed, and God provided a sacrifice in his place, so you don't have to die in your sins and receive the wrath and judgment of God. Instead, God has provided a lamb, the lamb, Jesus Christ, to die in your place. There is good news. Everyone can be forgiven and have the death penalty against them canceled by a loving and gracious God. Isn't that great news? And you can meet that today. Well, Abraham teaches us that we are to give God uh, our blessings. In other words, God wants all the gifts and blessings that he has given to us at his disposal. That's what he wants from us. And he wants us to sacrifice to him our Isaacs. He wants us to give to him and put under his control and relinquish to him his blessings that he has given us. There was one of our missionaries in India that worked real hard to witness to a Hindu woman many years ago. And she would share the gospel with her. And one day she met this woman and she had two of her sons with her. And this woman was um, off to uh, worship one of her Hindu deities in a very dramatic service. And the missionary witnessed to her and shared the gospel with her again and then asked her where she was going. And she said, I'm going to offer one of my sons to my God. And she said, please, oh, please don't do that. Christ does not require that. That's not what the God of heaven expects from you. And they, they parted company, and a few weeks later, she saw her. Now, when she went to offer her, one of her sons to Hindu God, one son was um, 
uh, of normal development, a bright and cheerful young man, someone of normal intelligence. The other son was twisted and crippled and, and was severely handicapped. And so when she saw her a few weeks later, she had the handicapped son with her. And she went and spoke with her and said, what, what, where's your other son? She said, well, I offered that son to my God. She said, offered him to your God. She said, I, I don't know how it is with your Christian religion, but in my religion, we give our very best to our God. Ladies and gentlemen, God calls from us for our very best. And let it never be said that the Hindus, Buddhists, and Muslims outrank the Christian people in giving their best to God. Let me ask you, have you given your children to God? Have you gone before God and said, Dear God, if you want my child to be a missionary, here you go, we will cooperate fully. God, if you want my child to do something for you and it's not near me, you can have them. God, you can have my home, and it can be a place of hospitality. It can be a place where we serve those who are struggling and downcast, where we can become friends and where we can pray with one another and give ourselves to one another and build a loving relationship with one another. Or, God, you can have my work. It's now for you a mission field. Or, or God, you, you can have, uh, dear God, you, you can have uh, my, my vocation. Uh, I, I'm, I'm teaching in, in a school in a nice county. God, I, I believe that I need to come to a Title I district. Have you given everything to God? Let, let's make sure that the religions of the world and their adherents are not outpacing the Christian people because while their gods are dead and languishing in a grave, Jesus Christ is risen and He deserves the very best. We give God our blessings. That's what Abraham teaches us. And we do it because we trust God. But there's a second thing. Uh, Isaac teaches us, by faith, give God your will. I uh, was taught when I was younger to do that. And I had a lot of examples, even my own, where not doing that was tragic. And I remember that when I finished seminary, my wife and I did some youth camps during the summer. And after the summer was over, we were, in the words of my father-in-law, looking at being unemployed riffraff. Well, that'll encourage him. Uh, but uh, in any case, that's, uh, that's the term he used half-jokingly. But in any case, uh, that's what we were looking at for that summer. So that summer, we needed somehow or another to find employment in a local church. And so we just trusted God. We asked God, please direct us and guide us and let us be in your will. One day, a church from South Carolina contacted me, and they were in fact at the camp, and members of the search committee were there. And they asked me for my resume, and I gave it to them. And I'd never been to the low country of South Carolina. I knew absolutely nothing about this church. Uh, Michelle and I had taken a compass, and we'd placed it on her hometown, and we had drawn a six-hour uh, circle, about 360-mile circle, around her hometown and asked God, if it be His will, He would place us in that. And that was at the far southeastern corner of that circle. Is exactly where that was. It ended up being, and I eventually went there, but uh, it ended up being a real challenging time. She enjoyed it, and I really struggled with it. I never adjusted culturally to the place. They were really stuck in the 50s, the 1750s. <laughs> I, I got in trouble. I got in trouble if I ever used the word pregnancy from the pulpit. Sure did. And it, it, was, it, was a, it was a big challenge. But I had... I had five deacons there who invested their time in me. 
and they walked with me through those three miserable years that I was there. (laughs) And they gave themselves to me, and they taught me how to be a pastor. I, I knew how to be a preacher. And I, I, but, but I still needed to learn how to be a leader, and I still needed to learn how to be a pastor. And I had it in my heart. I just didn't know exactly what to do. And they poured themselves into me, and I am forever, ever grateful. In fact, what I've done since then, and if I, have, I have lived in the trajectory of that three-year pastor. Now, a lot of people came to Christ. Uh, the church prospered and did very, very well. But personally, it was not a good time for me. Well, I, I, uh, one day... Uh, they asked me for my resume. The next day, a church from Houston called me, outside of Houston. In fact, it was just a few miles from where I grew up. And it was about two and a half times larger in Houston, Texas, a place where I had significant connections and relationships. I was very busy traveling and preaching, and I'll tell that story some other time. But I had a lot of, a big network and a lot of connections there. And they called me the next day, and they asked me, uh, wanted to talk with me. Well, I was already talking with this other church. And ministerial ethics and Baptist life are, when you start talking to one church, you don't start talking to another. You, you, you can't do that, okay? Um, that, that's not good in dating. That's not good in marriage. That's not good with churches, see? And, and the, the reasoning is, if you've got a hold of God's will, why would you need to do that? You just zero in on God's will. And I had already committed myself to talking with this church. I have to tell you, that was tough because my own will was, I want to go back near my home. I want to go back with my people and I'd like to win them and and do something there. Well, you know something? Isaac could understand that. In Genesis 25 through 27, he goes through an enormous battle about who to bless in his family. And who to lay his hand a blessing on. Now the promise came, the promise of a Messiah started with Abraham, and then it came through Isaac, and then God said, the second child born from you, Jacob, and they were twins, but Jacob was born second, he shall be the one that is blessed. But that's not the way they did things back then. Isaac, in fact, wanted Esau, the firstborn twin, to receive the blessing. And look what it says in verse number 20. By faith... Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning the things to come. So he did give Esau a blessing, but it wasn't the blessing of the oldest born child. He gave that to Jacob. Now, Isaac wanted to do that, just like I wanted to return to Houston. Isaac Isaac wanted to do that. Isaac wanted to bless Esau and to give him primary attention and primary blessing, and for him to be the one of promise. So he's battling with his own will, because God's will is one thing, and his is another. And the truth is, is that he started down the road of blessing Esau until his wife intervened and deceived him. And it tore up his family. May I say to you, would you please listen to me, especially you dads? If you're struggling with the will of God, and you're trying to decide between your will and God's will, would you please, would you please, if for no other reason than the sanity and peace of mind of your family, would you please choose the will of God? Put God's will above all else. Because listen, when you rebel against God's will and you put your will first, you never do it in isolation. You'll not be isolated. You are part of a family. You are heading a household. 
And if you end up violating the will of God, not only will you struggle and suffer, your whole family will. That is why it's so important for every man with a family or one who wants to have one one day to yield everything before God and just do things God's way. Isaac did it. It took him a struggle. And because he struggled with it, he tore up his family even though later he did the right thing. Listen, whatever you want to say about your will and your intelligence and your intuition and your insights, they are always inferior to God's. No one understands life like him. Hosea 14.9 says, All his ways are perfect. Do his will. So God wants us to give, us, uh, give him his blessings, uh, return to him blessings, and he wants us to give him Uh, our will. Then Jacob teaches us by faith, give God your tradition. Give God your tradition. Now tradition, you know what tradition is. Hopefully tradition is the living faith of the dead. And we've perpetuated some things because of their living faith. Traditionalism is entirely different. Traditionalism, while tradition is the living faith of the dead, traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. We don't want any of that. Now, there are some folks who are traditional in a very surprising way. Some are traditional about not being traditional. I've just got this narrow-minded chronological snobbery that if it's in the past, it must of that case be inferior. We we don't want any of that either. The, The truth is, is that there are traditions that can be of help, and then there are innovations that can be of help as uh, well. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. But um, Jacob here in this text is dealing with uh, essentially tradition and innovation. He wants to hold on to three traditions, and God is saying, I want you to be innovative here in this text. Oh, I'm not making this up. Look here. In verse number 21, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim. He took two grandsons and elevated them to the status of sons and bless them as if they were his own sons, not grandsons. You see, uh, his oldest and second oldest, Reuben and Simeon, had sinned horribly and scandalously and betrayed their father. And they were excluded in many ways from a blessing. Well, to take their place, Jacob elevates the two sons of Joseph into their place. Now, that's just not the way people did things back then. Uh, the, the, the traditions they were dealing with was that you're to bless the oldest and then the next. But Reuben and Simeon had disqualified themselves. And then you've got Joseph's sons. Now, who is Joseph at this time? Joseph is prime minister of Egypt. I mean, he's a heavy-duty royal leader. So his sons are princes. And then this Israelite who's got a disreputable job in Egypt in a disreputable family because they're shepherds, takes these two royal sons and adopts them as his own and blesses them and puts them in the stream, takes them out of the stream and future of Egypt where they're royal and puts them into the stream and future of Israel is what he does. And then what he does is he takes the youngest of Joseph's sons and blesses him as if he's the oldest. 
And blessed is the youngest, oldest, as if he is the youngest. So he overthrows three traditions in the text. He nicks them off. Now, tradition and innovation can help, but listen to me carefully, sweet people. Tradition and innovation can help, but ultimately they are irrelevant. Completely irrelevant. Now, that's tradition about ministry. That's tradition or, or uh, tradition and innovation about ministry. Tradition and innovation about worship. Tradition and innovation about what goes on in your family. Ultimately, these things are irrelevant. They are not to be masters. They are to be servants of God's will in His mission. The number one thing, the primary thing, when judging and evaluating tradition and innovation is, does this thing advance? Does this thing advance God's will in His mission? If it's in the way, it's discarded and the mission is guarded and it is retained. And that's what Jacob is doing here. And as a result, Ephraim and Manasseh become a powerhouse in Israel. And this is oftentimes the most overlooked thing when trying to make decisions. So, while tradition and innovation can help, they are ultimately irrelevant to the primary question, and that is, how does God want us to advance His mission? But then there's Joseph, and he teaches us, by faith, give God your status. In Brazil, one of our missionaries won a, uh, a girl from a family to Christ and got to know the family, and the young lady was effervescent in her witness for Christ, and it annoyed her mother terribly. Her mother beat her for her faith. Her mother starved her for her faith. Her mother ridiculed her for her faith. Her mother denied her needs and privileges because of her faith. But the young lady kept telling people about Jesus. She said, Jesus Christ is my Savior and I'm going to tell the world about Him. Well, guess what happened? Eventually that broke through to her mother. And her mother gave her heart and life to Christ and she said, I am not nearly as strong as my daughter. I don't have the strength of my daughter. I'm going to wait a while before I become like her and start telling the world about Jesus Christ. I'm going to wait a while. She said that one day. The next day, she came back to the missionary and said, I told someone about Jesus this morning. <laughs> In less than 24 hours, she did. She said, it's such good news, I could not keep it to myself. That's what she said. Wouldn't it be wonderful if everyone who claimed to know Christ thought the same way about Jesus? I just can't keep him to myself. All that because this little girl did not care about her status before her mother. She cared about her status before God. And that's what Joseph teaches us in this, uh, in this text. You see, Joseph has been elevated to prime minister back in uh, Genesis. And from Genesis 50, we find that as he is approaching his death, he gives Israel instructions, uh, the sons of Israel, instructions about what to do with him when he dies. Now, he's taking a terrible risk. Joseph has been elevated to the status of royalty is what's happened to him. And so, you know what he could expect when he dies. He could expect a state funeral. He could lie in repose in Egypt's capital. Uh, there would probably be some financial and material benefits that would be given to his family. He dies and his sons have a great future as royals. This is what Joseph is facing as uh, a high-ranking official, number two in charge in the land of the most powerful nation on the earth at the time. And here, in verse number 21, 
or verse 22, he puts it all at risk. Look what it says here, real quickly. Look what it says. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. He said to them, my heart is not here in Egypt. It's back in the promised land. And when I die, you take me back there and you bury me. And in that way, he put at risk the financial future of his family. See, if anyone overhears this, he's in trouble because he's exposing his heart. Um, He puts at risk his sons. He puts it all at risk. He doesn't care about his status. He cares about the will of God. So Joseph jeopardizes his role in his life and his status. And despite these, he still wants to get his bones back to the promised land. He spoke this in the hearing of others. Now with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, we find a great ending. Because Abraham did the will of God by faith. And because of that, God provided a ram and Isaac became the son of promise. Isaac did the will of God and both of his sons, Esau and Jacob, prospered. And by Genesis 33, the two of these young men have reconciled over their fallout precipitated by their father's stubbornness. Jacob ends up being blessed in that he takes on Ephraim and Manasseh and they become mighty in Israel. Joseph walks with God by faith and his wishes are fulfilled. He is buried in Israel, and we're still talking about him today. Had he disobeyed God, you may have never heard of him. So there is a great ending to all of this. Trusting God can give you a happy ending that your heart longs for. You know, your heart longs for more than what you've got right now. Sometimes you wish, is this all there is? Certainly, somehow or another, things have got to be better for me and for my world. Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish. That's the happy ending. Hey, it reminds me of a little boy that uh, wanted a puppy and they went to a store to purchase one back in the days when you could do that. And uh, there was uh, a litter of uh, puppies uh, bouncing around. One in particular just kept bouncing on his hind legs. And the little boy said, hey, Daddy, I want the one with a happy ending. (laughs) God can do that for you. God has a great, glorious ending in mind for you, just like he did Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, Billy Graham told one time a story about about a happy ending. He was invited to a luncheon in his honor in Charlotte, North Carolina, back in the year 2000, and he was asked uh, to to come. He said, you don't have to speak. Don't speak long uh, if you do. You don't have to do that. He was worried because he had developed Parkinson's and, and had the onset of it and didn't want to embarrass himself or embarrass them. But he came to the luncheon, and they did let him speak for a few minutes, and he said, uh, I'm reminded of uh, Albert Einstein. Uh, Albert Einstein got onto a train one day, and uh, a ticket master came up and asked him for his ticket. See, back then you could get on the train first and then give your ticket instead of giving before you got on the train. And uh, the ticket master came up and asked for his ticket, and Albert Einstein couldn't find it. He looked in his pants pockets, he looked in his seat, and the ticket master said, Sir, that, that's okay. Uh, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are, and you're fine. And so he went on. He turned around and found I, Albert Einstein on his hands and knees, looking under his chair, looking under the cushion of the seat, looking everywhere. 
And he came back to him. He said, Dr. Einstein, don't worry about this. We know who you are and you're fine. You're okay. We know who you are. And we're sure you purchased a ticket. He said, well, I know who I am. I need my ticket because I need to know where I'm going. <laughs> In that luncheon that day, Billy Graham said, I, today I'm wearing a new suit. He said, my family has complained that as I've gotten older, I'm dressing uh, a bit slovenly. I'm not as fastidious as I used to be. So I, I bought a new suit for this occasion, and this suit will serve another occasion. This is the suit I will be buried in. He said, I want you to listen to me. On the day you hear that I've died, I don't want you to think about this suit. Here's what I want you to remember. I know who I am, and I know where I'm going. Do you? How about you? Do you have that peace and assurance in your heart that things are right with God? Are, are, are you right with God? Is God right with you? Has He cleared everything? He's willing to, but you've got to place your faith in Jesus Christ. You've got to give your heart and life to Him. You've got to take your guilt and come before God with humility and say, Oh God, I know I've broken your law. And the condemnation that you can pour out on me is entirely just. God, I deserve it. But I believe Jesus took it at the cross and He's risen from the dead. He's alive. And He'll come into my life and forgive me and save me. Can you say something like that today? Is that where you want to place your faith? Right now, I want you to pray with me.